everyone, quick special announcement for you all. So we'll be co-presenting another screening at the New Art Theater on November 10th. As part of our Cinenation Presents screening series, we'll be doing Children of Men from Alfonso Caron. We've talked about this movie on the podcast before. It's a fantastic film. It's a masterpiece, and you can see it on the big screen, which is, I think, a, a great experience. Tickets are on sale now on the New Art Theater's website for $5, so get them while you can. We're only a few weeks away. I'll be doing an intro beforehand, so I hope to see you all there. It's our last episode of the month, Thomas. So it's October. October's coming to an end, and we've both been doing Spooktoberfest. So I have to ask, what's some, what, what's some stuff you've been watching as we near the end? I, I have a lot to catch up on after mm-hmm. we record this episode. Because I have like a list of like stuff where like on my letterbox I have like, I want to watch like a movie from like a Korean horror movie, a Japanese mm-hmm. horror movie, things like that, because I want to be more not just the same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. So what what have you been watching? I um well first off I've, I've I've slowed a little bit on my on my logging on my letterbox list because I've been watching uh Fall of the House of Usher which is same. fantastic. I'm doing the exact same. <laughs> I looked at my thing I was just like, "Oh man, like it looks like I'm not watching anything but like, I'm watching like an episode or two a day right now of mm-hmm. Fall of the House of Usher." And we both like Mike Flanagan, I know. Mm-hmm. I, and I haven't watched as much of his TV stuff as I wish I had. Like I loved Haunting of Hill House, and for yes. some reason, I never like kind of went back to his stuff. So like the one I want to watch after this is Midnight Mass. Everyone tells me that's kind of like the one. <laughs> Midnight Mass is like my least favorite. I didn't watch the the one for teens. Interesting. I, I didn't watch. Yeah, Midnight everyone Mass says is, yeah. And, and people like I'll I'll tell people this, and and you know once again it it is what it intends to be. But Midnight Mass is a sequence of monologues. And mm. it just it, it just it wore me out eventually. It was every time they start zooming in on somebody's face, I was like, oh, here we go. Here's a five minute monologue from this person. <laughs> and I've I've told people who love it that I'm like, it was just too monologue for me. And they were like, oh, I love that. And I was like, OK, there you go. That's that's right. That's yeah. your right. But um, that's your right. <laughs> it yeah, that, that one didn't hit for me. Haunting of Hill House is still for me the peak of just I think it was. Haunting of Hill House is one of those things where I, I don't I don't like forcing horror onto people, but uh, Haunting of Hill House was like is so good from a dramatic standpoint that yeah. I've I've told several people they're like I don't like horror and I'm like the family drama of Haunting of Hill House is so compelling that I, you like yeah. the horror is there yes but um but yeah, I'm really like I'm really yeah. liking Fall of the House of Usher because I I lo- I I didn't know going into it that it was going to be this like journey through all of poe which yeah yeah follow the house of usher is like one of my least favorite poe stories but then mm. that when we got into it and i was like oh wait wait here's like every every else. episode's <laughs> kind of is kind of built around mm-hmm. like a loose interpretation of a poe story yeah like as soon and, as as soon as uh carl lumley showed up and was like i'm august dupin i was like wait a second he's not in follow the house of usher <laughs> And they're like, oh, yeah, his wife is Annabelle Lee. I was like, oh, okay, this is where we're going. We're, we're, we're doing this. And, it, yeah, it just starts like – and then it's it's interesting just kind of seeing as the show progresses of, like, character – you're saying, like, it's, like, the, the character choices of, like, what their profession is and stuff is not just, like, by happenstance. It's like, oh – it all this connects it's crazy a yeah. heart surgeon i want and i you know i don't even think about like oh yeah this is gonna connect to some post story and then you're like oh wait 
it's this one yeah they're experimenting on monkeys it's like well that's funny because poe wrote a story about a monkey one time uh, <laughs> but i outside of that the my, my favorite discovery this week uh you probably saw me post a glowing review of it on letterboxd but i watched I did. Uh, the I chuck did. connor's movie tourist trap I, I've never I've never heard of this movie. Where has that movie it. been hiding? It is <laughs> I loved it. It was fantastic. Um Yeah, it's like a we talked about Hicksploitation uh two weeks ago. It's like a nineteen seventy-nine Hicksploitation slasher, but it's got like some supernatural elements to it. It's got like some psycho to it, it's got some Texas Chainsaw Massacre in there. But yeah, Chuck Connors, former pro athlete slash the rifleman slash old yeller you, you know um is the is the 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 hick and and is and he's great and the is shot really well and it does some mm-hmm. really cool stuff and the score is beautiful the final shot of it i was just like it, when it, it went out on this like freeze frame and i was like why have more people not seen this why is this not like a horror <laughs> classic yeah, it's on Shutter right now. It's on a Peacock, Pluto, like Tubi, all those places. Check it out, guys. Yeah, it's on my. It's on. My, I'm knock it out before the end of the month. Oh yeah, Slumber Party Massacre. So you watched that? That yeah. was one I think I watched. I finally well, got around I, to that one. I knew. I knew it was a. I knew it was a classic. Um, it's fun. I I read that you know it was supposed to be a lot more subversive and fun, and and then the studio got their hands into it. So kind of wish we had more of that um yeah but yeah it was a good time i really i i like i i like the first one. i really like the second one okay I'll the, second, to check out one, the one. second one's kind of wild because it takes a just a hard pivot of of the killer is like a leather clad rock and roll singer is what it is and he has like a, a, a his guitar is a drill and he's called the drill killer is what it is it's nice I walked in one day at the video store and there's a scene where he's doing a lit like in the movie, a legit like music video as he's like about to kill someone. And I was like, what the hell is going on here? I have to watch this. Um, but yeah, so ones I want one that I watched recently that was well, one I watched last night that I really love and uh, just kind of a cool old school throwback is uh, the Night Stalker with Darren McGavin from a Christmas story. Mm-hmm. He plays uh, Kolchak. The uh, like journalist who delves into supernatural uh, mm-hmm. like elements. It was it was a TV show before that. It was two made for TV movies. One called the Night Stalker. One called the Night Strangler. And Night Night Stalker is like it's really good. Uh, it's like it's a great like time capsule of early seventies LA because mm-hmm. because Kolchak's just McGavin's just driving around not LA Las Vegas driving around Las Vegas and you're seeing all the like old casinos and like Fremont street, all these different places. And it's just gorgeous. Um, and it's just this really cool, like mixture of horror and like procedural, basically like crime procedural. Mm-hmm. And like, I, I was reading up on it, talking about how Chris Carter from the X-Files say like, it was that the night soccer was the biggest influence on the kind of creation or like tone of X-Files because night soccer, especially in the early seventies, could easily make a campy supernatural story but it take it does it very seriously is the thing it takes it very seriously so it's a kind of interesting like noir meets horror movie uh in a way mm-hmm. um and then i watched a movie called pontypool oh yeah canadian mm-hmm. ca- have you seen it before i have yeah, yeah it's a kind of a wild <laughs> 
story. I don't want to spoil it for you because it's like you think it's one thing, and then just the way it tells it is just very unique. Mm-hmm. Uh, is the thing. I don't know how if it fully lands, but it's such a kind of ambitious like turn mm-hmm. that like you kind of have to like applaud it. Is my thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah, it's not. It's that's not my favorite like horror subgenre, but it that is a that is a good one. Yeah, so it was it was just kind of a fascinating uh, Canadian horror film. So that's some stuff we're watching. We got a few more days left. There's probably some stuff on Criterion, um, stuff on Shutter. So if you're listening to this now, go watch some of the the stuff for the Halloween season. Then we'll get into Noir Vember next month, and then Christmas stuff the month after. So. Be prepared. Uh, but we got today, your, we got your next. We've got your three months of viewing yeah, laid this, out this for is, you. This is this is this is the great kind of time of, of the season. Everyone got a lot of like specific. I'm trying to do better at that even outside these months. So I kind of have like a specific theme I go through every month of like watch stuff that I don't usually watch is a thing. So I'm trying to do mm-hmm. better at that. I think what did you say? September was like Screwball September or whatever. <laughs> we named it. And sure. Like screw, Screwball comedies. You sent this to me at one point. I remember. It's um, probably a tweet, and I just passed it along. Probably, yeah, you passed a long time. But I did grab bringing up baby in the um in the Criterion I saw, flash sale. I saw, so. I, I saw you say yeah, I saw you put that. I got a few things on there. I got a few gifts for people. Um, I got After Hours. I got a uh, High Sierra mm. Humphrey Bogart. It looked, mm-hmm. Well, I bought it. I got it because it was kind of a loaded Blu-ray. It had it was like a two-disc Blu-ray, I think. Sometimes I go. Sometimes I go for the ones that are like, I'm like oh, this is the most bang for my buck out of this one. Yeah, and that was when I was like, oh, this is like a, a lot of stuff, like a couple like documentaries. I was like, you know, and I like High Sierra. And it's been like, re- and I think there's actually, it's been remade like so many different times, like High Sierra, but a Western mm-hmm. uh, or whatever. Or High Sierra, but uh, a sci-fi. Like, it, just, like, it has like a weird, like takes a genre, but puts that kind of story of uh, people who are about to go rob a bank. And it's all the, it's basically the opposite of Reservoir Dogs, where it's all the prep before the heist, not the mm-hmm. aftermath of the heist. Um, but we're checking it out. But anyway. This month, Thomas, we've been talking about horror stuff, uh, and we'll dive into that now. But first, I'm Brand Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And this is Nation Podcast. As I said, we're talking about social horror movies, and we're coming towards the end of the month. Give us a recap, Thomas. What have we talked about? How have we narrowed down horror horror movies into this social like niche uh, subgenre of it? Well, we're talking about movies, as we've said, that kind of specifically set out with a, a aspect of society that they want to talk about. Um, we've we've talked about before how, you know, pretty much pretty much every movie or especially in horror is kind of a response to something that's going on in society. So mm-hmm. so, you, you know, you wouldn't be hard pressed to find social issues in, in any movie or any horror movie. But these are ones that are specifically kind of obviously made to address some sort of issue um mm-hmm. and we talked about kind of the the intro you know going back to uh twilight zone and the idea of anthology stories very high concept anthology stories where you know it's like this is the big idea is that racism is horror <laughs> uh yeah yeah um uh, gentrification is brainwashing <laughs> um yeah uh southern confederate pride is bloodlust you know it's 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 very you're starting with like a very big concept 
and yeah. then kind of telling a story from there as opposed to something like hereditary that's like how does grief affect a family and pull a family yeah. apart is like so it's very different two different very different approaches to horror and what we're talking about here is something that takes a concept in in these cases a socio-political concept and delves into the horror surrounding that and usually uses mm -hmm. it to teach you some sort of lesson mm -hmm. yeah and with this movie too it's like uh today we're talking about invasion of the body Snatchers from 1978 it's actually an interesting kind of ending of the month because it's a movie that's been made several times mm -hmm. and each time they all kind of try to pick a different social issue discussed specifically of the era i think a lot of these movies too I was talking about is these social horror movies are almost time capsules in a way is that they're referring to a social horror in the moment mm -hmm. is the thing. If it was get out in the Obama administration, post Obama into the Trump administration kind of era, if you're looking at uh, 2000 maniacs with the, the kind of civil rights movement and the rise of Southern pride or, uh, uh, or kind of reaction to the civil rights movement with, with the kind of lost cause uh, uh, fallacy there, or then Night of the Living Dead, where it's kind of this interesting look at like Vietnam era post civil rights movement into the seventies, kind of how it's all tackling race and social kind of issues there. And then today with Invasion of the Body Snatchers, looking at more of a a little bit different social issue, not dealing with race, not dealing with even crime or anything like that, but kind of the idea of uh conformity in a way. But also this sometimes silent killer that's approaching mm -hmm. and like i said every and we'll talk about it a little bit later but every kind of interpretation of this movie has tackled a issue of the time if it's the original one in the 50s where it's tackling kind of is it mccarthyism is it communism who knows mm -hmm. this one being kind of this paranoia driven um the 70s version paranoia driven one but also the idea is the rise of consumerism and the loss of like counterculture and 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 conformity and how you people conform uh there was a one in the 90s uh that was kind of about the aids crisis at that time and there's one in 2007 that was about um uh, like post 9 11 yeah. like counter and like terrorism it's like people like, this is a very and there and also too there's talks of a remake today with this movie. So it's an interesting kind of seeing how every so often, and there's also been like interpretation of this, like with the faculty or whatever of this type of storyline of the pod person storyline um, that people can kind of take in and out of the decade and put their own little spin on it is the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we'll talk about it, but this is, you know, this is a movie that's very interesting because not only has it been remade multiple times also like you know the term pod people has become kind of a genre of its yep. own <laughs> so so it's become it's oddly become kind of its own subgenre in itself um so yeah, yeah. it'll, it'll this will be a fun episode and, and james gunn has used yes. it so many times yes. <laughs> almost every james gunn movie <laughs> i remember you texted me during peacemaker you're like I think you're going to notice something at a certain point that like he does again in this story. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then it happened. I was like, Oh yeah, you're right. Yep. And we just kind of did it in the previous thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, so with today's movie invasion of the body snatchers released in 1978, it's directed by Philip Kaufman written by WD Reichert, uh, based on a novel by Jack Finney. 
and produced by Robert H. Solo. It stars Donald Sutherland as the San Francisco health inspector and him and his colleague played by Brooke Adams are, they find out that there's some, there, there, something has happened where these aliens are duplicating human beings. People they know in their lives are turning odd. And the only thing they can kind of put together is that they're being replaced with something else. And it's these biological clones um, and it's these kind of characters that have lost their humanity, lost their kind of emotion. And these characters, along with their friends, uh, Jack and Nancy, but Jeff Goldblum and Veronica Cartwright are trying to figure out what's going on. And in some cases may try to escape San Francisco, which is where this, the movie takes place at, uh, before these possible pod people take over their bodies as well. Mm-hmm. So, this is my, this. I haven't watched this in a very long time. I feel like I watched this in high school. Is the thing, high school or college? But what is your history with this movie, Thomas? Yeah, I watched this one uh, in like my first year of college. Um, in kind of one of my intro to film crit classes, it's like we we spent a lot of time on like the mid to late seventies, and um, so you you and I had discussed like which version of this movie we were going to do, and this we this did one, we did this is one I I just I love everything about this movie from like a visual standpoint and, and the cast too, like I I, yeah. I love the cast and um, it's just we we've covered like some like Frankenheimer and 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 like some of this era of like kind of conspiracy film but like something about the the like aesthetic of this like like mid to late 70s filmmaking just makes it feel so like grounded is you know it's it's such a out there movie but you're watching and you're like yeah this feels real this no it does it's it's got like a tactileness to it so i i had not revisited in a very long time uh but i was i was excited to come back to it for this um because yeah i think uh you know it's culturally it's kind of interesting to place what's going on and what the kind of social aspect of it is but also it's just like this is one of my favorite periods of filmmaking so it's very fun yeah it's again it's one i kind of forgot i i, I think the big thing is as we'll kind of spoil this movie as we go forward if you haven't seen it it's currently streaming on amazon prime and max but the thing i always remember is like the ending of the movie is kind of the mm. big like oh my god that's what's actually this is what's happened and that's what I always remember about it. And I didn't really, because it's been so long, remember the like the visual style of this movie and and how well done it is, and um and how it actually is a allegory for the the rise of paranoia at the time of the seventies in this post Watergate mm-hmm. era, uh, questioning the government, questioning who's listening in on conversations. Um, like you said, we talked about this in the past with, we did like an Alan Pakula episodes. We talked about, uh, all the president's men or Clute or the parallax view. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about the conversation before as well of this. And this is all kind of happening right before this time is the thing. And, and then San Francisco, again, another thing too, we, we, I see more and more in movies. It happened just recently in like a haunting in Venice. There's something about shooting in the actual place and like a place that, that that actually has character to it is the thing, and like I say, Haunting in Venice because I remember watching this previous two movies that that uh, Branna did with with those Perot stories, and they just felt like CGI like sets basically, mm-hmm. um, and they're not actually there. But like when the Haunting in Venice, like they're in the canals of Venice, they're in these places. And the reason why I think people love 
the Mission Impossible movies, they, they actually end these locations. Mm. And there's something so refreshing to see yeah. a movie that just takes place in a city that feels like the city it's taking place in. Yeah, I mean, that's that's sense. the great thing about that that credits note in the last Mission Impossible where they said, you know, at the end, they were like, the Spanish steps were not harmed in the making of that scene. And it's yeah. just like a really nice nod to everybody who does appreciate that they shoot on location. Yeah, there's just some there's just something to it that it's like it's a part of it's a part of cinema. It's a thing. It's like you want to you want to represent these places, this this time, this era, and it's best to do it in actually being there is the thing. If it's Killers of the Fire Moon actually shooting in Oklahoma or whatever, um, or places like that, it's like you want to kind of be there and not not on a soundstage wherever the sound stage is in, in the country or in the world. Um, but yeah, so let's kind of dive into this movie, uh, Invasion of the Bicenatchers, uh, and the history of how it got to production. So when talking about this movie, I feel it's best to discuss a person who some might say has been overlooked from this era, and that's Philip Kaufman. So there's mm. a lot of story here about Philip Kaufman. That's kind of my main character for this episode well, is Philip I Kaufman. I love that. I'm a big Philip Kaufman guy, so I'm yeah. on board. So, born in, in Chicago in 1936 to Elizabeth and Nathan Kaufman, Philip was the grandson of German-Jewish immigrants. His mom was a housewife, and his dad was a produce businessman. He talked about growing up in Chicago in the World War II era, saying you were either in the lower class or the lower middle class at best. He grew up in a very urban landscape, living in an apartment building, like a three-story apartment building with his parents, and attending a school that had almost, as he said, I don't, I can't verify this number, 5,000 students, which to me is just wild as someone <laughs> who went to school with like less than 1,000. Uh, one of those classmates was future filmmaker William Friedkin. Oh, no way. He, I'm not sure how close they were, but it seems like they at least knew each other, even though Friedkin was a few years older. Uh, their paths across, and it seems they actually talked about films occasionally, is what is what I kind of pick up on in some of Kaufman's later interviews. Kaufman said he attended movies regularly at a young age, seeing a lot of double features, like B-movie double features. He said the first movie he remembers seeing was Cat People from 1942, directed by Jacques Turner, mm -hmm. uh, which is a movie, and also produced by Val Luton, a movie that's most often credited for inventing or popularizing the technique of the jump scare in a horror film. And Kaufman said his mom thought it was going to be like a Disney animated film like Snow White or uh, <laughs> Pinocchio, but it ends up being one of the scariest movies of its era. <laughs> as, as Kaufman later said, it's no wonder I ended up making Invasion of the Body Snatchers. After graduating from college at the University of Chicago, where he met his future wife, Rose, Kaufman would spend a year studying law at Harvard before moving back to Chicago to obtain a master's degree in hopes of teaching Philip and his wife Rose would soon move to San Francisco in 1960 at the kind of early beginnings of the counterculture movement. He would take various jobs in San Francisco and meet several influential figures, including uh, a famous writer, Henry Miller, who Kaufman would later make a film about called Henry and June. But a year after living in San Francisco, the couple and their newborn baby Peter would travel to Europe and they would backpack around Europe with Peter in tow as Philip would teach around the continent. Uh, he taught English and math and for two years in Greece and Italy. They also lived to, for a brief time in Israel for, uh, for him to teach. And while in Europe, Kaufman was affected by the works of the French New Wave 
and other movements that are popping up around the continent. But it also seems he saw some of the independent voices coming out of America with John Cassavetes with his film Faces and Shirley Clark's The Connection. Kaufman and his family would soon move back to America with him determined to make a movie. And they would arrive in Chicago and he began working on his directorial debut, Goldstein, a mystical comedy retelling of the story of Elijah. And it starred young actors from the Second City Comedy Troupe in Chicago. Hmm. The film was shown at Cannes in 1964, receiving praise from French filmmakers Jean Renault and Francois Truffaut, who said it was the best American film he had seen in 20 years, which is a high compliment, yeah. I must say. Wow. For that, for a man who saw a lot of films, <laughs> uh, that's a high compliment. Kaufman would then make a movie called Fearless Frank, which, which actually starred John Voight in his film acting debut oh, right no. before he does Midnight Cowboy. Uh, not long after this, Kaufman would soon land a contract at Universal Studios in their Young Directors program around 1969. And based off that timeline, can you guess what, uh, or an, one of the other directors who was signed at Universal at this exact same time? Spielberg. It was Steven Spielberg. I don't know if they that that was like they That's crossed they paths met. this moment. I don't know if they met, but I just want to bring that up because Spielberg actually will have a uh, we name drop one more time in this episode is the thing. Yes, but Spielberg signed a seven year deal, making him the youngest director to sign a long term contract in Hollywood, I believe. Uh, and that was Universal in 1969. He did a lot of TV before moving on to made for TV movies, and then before doing features. But Kaufman would only make one movie for Universal during this original run with the great Norfield, Minnesota raid in 1972, starring Robert Duvall and Cliff Robertson with Duvall hmm. playing Jesse James and Robertson playing Cole Younger. So it was about the Cole James Younger, the Younger J or James Younger gang or whatever the, yeah. the way is. After that, he would follow it up with the White Dawn Starring Warren Oates, Louis Ga or Louis Gossett Jr., and Timothy Bottoms. That sounds awesome. About a wait to hear the story about a group of whalers who are stranded in the Arctic at the turn of the century. Yeah, I've, I've never yeah. seen that movie. Yeah, I think it actually has a pretty high rating on Letterboxd, if I'm not mistaken, for like White Dawn. Yeah, three point five. Hmm. 1896 three survivors of a whaling shipwreck in the canadian arctic are saved and adopted by eskimo tribe but frictions arise when the three start misbehaving yeah yeah check that one out yeah it's an adventure movie after the white dawn Kaufman and his family would officially move back to, to san francisco after living in los angeles for his work Kaufman would soon be brought on to direct the outlaw josie wales and also work on the current draft on the script of the script and now this is where Kaufman begins to go through a fascinating run of what ifs. Kaufman would soon begin directing the outlaw Josie Wales with Clint Eastwood as the star. Kaufman would prep the film and begin production, but soon tensions between Eastwood and Kaufman would rise. On a professional level, it seems Eastwood was frustrated with Kaufman's meticulous attention to detail, feeling he was taking too long to shoot the movie, which... If you, don't Eastwood, <laughs> if you know anything about Eastwood, yeah. He doesn't like to take too long to shoot a movie. Uh, on one occasion, Eastwood and director of photography would actually shoot a scene when Kaufman was off looking for the perfect prop because Eastwood didn't want to wait around. Oh, man. So they actually, I think they shot it, left him there. Or whatever. Like, like Basically, he, he arrived and they were all gone. On a personal level, there are some, there are some reports that say there was a rift between the two, the two, director and actor, 
because of a mutual attraction they had for the female lead of the movie, Sandra Locke. And after the movie, I think Locke and Eastwood, I think it's just discussed in uh, Korean Long Works, you must remember this podcast, Locke and Eastwood would have kind of a affair mm. for the coming years, basically. So a, a three weeks into production or a certain amount of time in production, Eastwood would finally persuade the film's producer to fire Kaufman and replace him with Eastwood himself. This would cause an outrage in Hollywood with the DGA and Hollywood executives upset with the decision by Warner Brothers to back Eastwood. After pressure from these groups, Warner Brothers refused to reinstate Kaufman and they backed Eastwood as the director of Outlaw Josie Wells, resulting in the studio paying a fine of $60,000. The DGA would soon adopt a rule that prohibited an actor or producer from firing a director and then taking over the role themselves and receiving credit. It would be known as the Eastwood Rule. Around this time, with Kaufman being in the Bay Area, he would soon meet another famous filmmaker of the area, George Lucas. It was 1975 when Lucas pitched Kaufman on an idea he'd come up with while making American Graffiti. It was an ode to the B-movie serials he had grow- grown up with, and it was called The Adventures of Indiana Smith. Hmm. Really rolls off the tongue. Yeah. Kaufman loved the idea because, as I said, he grew up watching B-movies, and he wanted to help Lucas create the story for it. So Lucas and Kaufman would work for two weeks to develop this idea. And while Kaufman would make a few minor character adjustments to Indiana Smith, the main contribution was introducing the idea of the search for the Ark of the Covenant. That was his big thing. Mm -hmm. Lucas would soon table the idea of Indiana Smith to work on Star Wars, but his intent was to let Philip Kaufman direct the movie. And Kaufman would be the choice for directing until 1981 when Lucas met with Steven Spielberg and pitched him the idea. And Spielberg was like, I would love to direct this because I want to direct a James Bond movie. That's why Lucas pitched it to him. This sounds like this is like an American James Bond. Yep. Lucas then called up Kaufman and be like, yo, do you still want to direct this? And at some point it seems Kaufman moved on to another project and Spielberg would step in to tackle Indiana Smith but one of the first things he said was, I hate this name. Can we change it to Indiana Jones? I, did, I hadn't realized that Kaufman had been a teacher because uh, Kasdan had also been a teacher. And then, you know, Kasdan came in to help finish the script. That was a big thing that Kaufman changed with, Indi- with, with the character of Indiana is that Lucas, he had him as a professor, but he had him as like a constant nightclub patron and womanizer around Mm. town and Kaufman was like let's not do that (laughs) that was the big change but once Lucas moved on to Star Wars Kaufman would move on as well and his next project was going to be a science fiction film starring Larry Nimoy and that is called Star Trek ah yeah classic after the ending of the Star Trek television show Paramount was looking to turn the series into a feature film and Kaufman would be brought on board to write a script and also direct it, spending a year working on this project. Wow. It was to star Nimoy as Spock, but Kaufman also had plans to cast uh, Toshiro Mifune as a Klingon in the movie. Models were being built in England as Kaufman was constantly working on the script, but Kaufman would soon receive a call one morning saying, bad news, there's no future in science fiction. (laughs) And the movie was canceled. Word around town, there was this new sci-fi film that was about to be released, and it was going to be a massive failure. Mm-hmm. And that was Star Wars. And so after these big what-ifs, 
at some point, Kaufman would be offered to direct a remake of the 1956 film Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Originally directed by Don Siegel and starring Kevin McCarthy, the 50s film was a sci-fi horror film about an alien invasion in a small town in California with the the aliens invading through plant spores. And the film was based on Jack Finney's 1954 novel, The Body Snatchers, which originally appeared in the serialized serialized form in Collier's magazine that became a novel in 1955 is what it was. Kaufman was a fan of the original film, so he was hesitant to take on the movie. He said he first saw it in its initial run, saying he remembers his friends discussing it because of how scary and provocative it was. It wasn't about communism, it wasn't about McCarthyism. It was these two ideals that were competing against one another in American culture at the time, and who knew what it was actually referring to. Kaufman said the movie was like an extension of great radio, comparing it to Orson Welles' War of the Worlds and the popular series The Shadow. But Kaufman soon began thinking on the story and he wondered that maybe it didn't have to be a remake exactly, but a variation on the same themes. He said Hollywood was not really big at making remakes at that time, so it was kind of like breaking new ground. In The Hollywood Reporter in 2018, Kaufman said the allegory metaphor was moving it first of all into color, second of all with a contemporary cast, and thirdly, trying to give the characters a depth of characterization in a way the original did not have. The last thing was moving it to a big city. By the time we were making the film, paranoia had certainly gravitated to the big cities where it probably lurks now more than ever. Mm -hmm. San Francisco was Kaufman's favorite city in the entire world, which is why he moved there and I think still lives there to this day. He also knew that San Francisco was seen as one of the more progressive cities in America especially since it was the hub of the counterculture movement of the 1960s. Mm -hmm. But Kaufman was seeing how all the hippies of the era were becoming part of the system. You don't say. Yeah. Getting regular jobs, leading regular lives, giving up on those nonconformist acts of their youthful years and conforming. The hippies becoming the yuppies is basically what it's turning Mm. into. Uh, but before it actually becomes gets a name, it's like he's really right there before the big shift really happens. Kaufman said about San Francisco, it's the city with the most advanced progressive therapies, politics, and so forth. What would happen in a place like that if the pods landed there and the element of pottiness was spread across the city? As I said, one of the big things Kaufman wanted to do was update the characters in the movie. He wanted to create real characters. And referring to Jeff Goldblum's character of Jack, he based it off of several people he knew in San Francisco. Those lost beat poets that were left over from the 60s that were still holding on to those, their nonconformist ways. But the heart of the movie was the tragic romance of Matthew and Elizabeth. While there was a romance in the original 1956 film, Kaufman felt it should be the core of the story because the movie is about the loss of humanity. And when taking away the ability to love, you lose your humanity. So when it came to casting the film, Kaufman was looking for a different, less conventional leading man. And he said they needed a name act, named actor for this movie as well. And Mike Metavoy at United Artists suggested Donald Sutherland. For, the, for most of the 1970s, which I did not realize this, Sutherland had spent most of his time in Europe making movies. After the success of 1973 film Don't Look Now, Sutherland would, be, would make several European films, including The Eagle Has Landed in England, Federico Fellini's Casanova and Bernardo Berlucci's 1900. 
Sutherland would soon return to America, read the script, and agree to star in the movie. I think receiving $300,000 for his role, if I'm not mistaken. Hmm. For the role of Elizabeth, Kaufman cast Brooke Adams. Mm. Now, Adams was fairly unknown at the time of her casting, but before the film was released, her breakout role would come with... Days of Heaven. It was Days of Heaven. Terrence Malick's Days of Heaven. Released two months before Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Wow. For the role of Jack, Kaufman would cast a very young Jeff Goldblum, who had mostly appeared in small roles at this point in time, like a blinking you miss it cameo one liner and an Annie Hall. But his first starring role came the same year as Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and that was Thomas. Birth girls are easy. <laughs> no, that's later. Thank God it's Friday. Oh yeah. <laughs> Bringing it back again. <laughs> same exact year. I wish we somebody out there, please tell me you're keeping count of how many times we, we can tie things I, back to this we're, movie. We're at like at four or five, I think, right now. Jeez. It's 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 been wild. It's one of the more mentioned movies it feels like on the show. Um Veronica Cartwright was also cast as Nancy, uh Jack's wife, uh, and who works at the like the bat or the uh the what's what's it, like the mud bath uh place. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had been mostly working in television at the time, kind of off and on. But before that, she starred in movies as a child actress in the 1970s, or no, 1960s. Her biggest role was in Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. Hmm. She's she's one of the kids in The Birds. Oh, huh. Um, and then for the role of Dr. David Kibner, <laughs> Kaufman would cast Leonard Nimoy after working with him during the process of making Star Trek, yeah. which never happened for him. Coffin said that Larry Nimoy had been typecast a lot at this point, and the film was an attempt to break him out of that because people weren't going to expect that the beloved Spock would be the film's main villain. Mm-hmm. Coffin would soon put together a fantastic team of collaborators with Michael Chapman as director of photography and Ben Burt at the film as the film's sound designer. We'll talk about those two guys later on. So with the cast and crew, team moved into production, and now let's move to favorite scenes. So Thomas, what's one of your favorite scenes in this movie? I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to set a precedence where we're going like scene by scene, but I do love the opening of this. Nobody's um, great, <laughs> especially given that you and I have both kind of gone on the record as saying we don't need the like space aspect of the thing. The thing, uh, God, yeah. I do love the the like alien, the intro to the aliens, and like how they got to Earth is so like beautifully done here. Yeah. that aesthetically, you kind of forget that it's ex- that it's like exposition, you know. Um, yeah it's it's really really cool the way i mean just the just the design of the aliens in general through this movie like them coming to earth as like a fungus on plants and and um but but yeah i think the the opening is so cool and i think it's a great way to kind of ease you into like yeah this is an old school like sci-fi movie but told yeah. through the lens of like 70s uh kind of not independent, but you know the 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 movie brats, the the vibes, the kind of new vibes that the that the film yeah. brats were bringing to the table. Well, it establishes early on once Brooke Adams picks the flower that someone's always watching. Mm-hmm. Is someone is always seeing what you're doing, and that's just that was a a time and place uh, where that was beginning to this paranoia was beginning to take hold of people, mm-hmm. and. What I love, because I was, I was replaying the beginning of it today as I watched it last night and was rewatching again today, and kind of the how well it's actually setting up the movie without you knowing it. So, like, I was rewatching it because if she pricks the flower at the beginning, 
But then you see a group of like kids and they're like, and, and the teacher, oh, pick some flowers or whatever. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, so these kids go pick that flower, take it home. And then essentially probably it turns their parents into mm-hmm. these pod people. And that's like a way that it spreads essentially. And that was fascinating. And then you kind of it's setting up again, the Jeffrey stuff with the, how he's like kind of a couch potato, like watching basketball and, Art Hinkle. Listen, yeah, just love, listen. Love like, some Art Hinkle. He's great in this. And then, like, quickly, just, like, when he turns into the the pod person. Mm-hmm. And, like, the way it's done, again, it's, like, it shows, it's showing the 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 the, uh, the, the flower and the, the cup with water, and you're seeing it kind of blue and turn. And then it's them kind of in bed together. And the next morning, he's in a suit and tie, slick back <laughs> hair, and he's cleaning up the glass that basically broke when the pod person was created essentially yeah and it's just a fascinating little like beginnings in the mystery like what's going on but then once you replay after watching it you're seeing all the setups that we're getting to later in the movie Mm -hmm. yeah and and you and you you're already getting because we know what he even that brief glimpse of what he was like uh yeah and the beginning you 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 can already see kind of the the flaw of of the the aliens is that they they like want to create these, you know, quote unquote, perfect beings that yeah. like follow the rules and get up early and go and get ready for work and get your suit on. And it's like, oh, that's not like they, they can't pick up on like the idiosyncrasies of of human beings. <laughs> yeah. And we'll talk more about that, too, because I think I think at one point I was reading how Kaufman was saying how it was the rise of like kind of like medication, antidepressants. how Everyone's like so anxious and wanted to end it. And how he was kind of saying that that these these pod people are like basically devoid of the, devoid of that but it becomes inhuman where like mm-hmm. they have no anxiety they have no emotions and so the idea is that if you're trying to take your emotions away you're becoming less human is what yeah. in a weird kind of state is yeah. what i'm saying yeah i mean you, um, you know it's 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 the if we jump to the end just for a moment you know it's like when, yeah. when leonard nimoy is is trying to talk them into joining and he's like you know what you're if you just come with us like it'll be we're going to take away all the stress we're going to take away all the pain it, you're, you'll still be you but it but you'll be like perfect and then to just see in the end when we're watching uh donald sutherland kind of walk around and take everything in it's like this is so boring it's just <laughs> like everyone's well, just they stand they go to work they stand in their like in their lab until it's time to go home and then they all just file out and get on the get on the elevator well again it's a great comparison work because i watched the beginning again where it's like when because i because Sutherland i think is great in the beginning part and we'll talk about his intro a little bit in a minute. but <laughs> yeah. but but when but when he meets brooke adams where he had they had the phone call conversation and he's cutting the newspaper up which they bring back later on in the mm-hmm. movie and it's just it's like you know she's seeing this guy, but it's they're close friends, but it feels somewhat flirtatious mm-hmm. is the thing. And then even when they're in the hallway after they've they've come to work, and she's like, "Oh, he was just weird today," and he's like, "Well, he and he kind of doing weird stuff all the time. Like <laughs> maybe maybe you should leave him. Like yeah. he seems like she's like or it's like or, or tell him to get out of the house." And she's like, "But it's his house. Well, make him an offer." Like <laughs> it's like so. There's banter, and then that you have the ending where it's the complete opposite where they don't speak. He's just, he watches her and there's no emotion. Mm-hmm. There's none of that there because it's all been taken away. So all that kind of that anxiousness and, and kind of like young love or like kind of young love or young love feeling in a way 
all of a sudden it's gone away and they're just people who pass by each other every day no thought no feeling about the other really in any way shape or form mm. um and that's just a fascinating kind of uh exploration of that in a in a paranoid sci-fi thriller basically but yeah backtrack of Sarlan's intro just a great intro <laughs> of of him being a health inspector and you just like is? coming it's a caper it's a rat turd i love it's that it's not a rat turd it's a caper okay you eat it <laughs> yeah and he won't do it um because he knows he knows um and then you had that part where like he, he the, the kind of sound part with the guy like the cooks like basically break his windshield with the mm-hmm. bottle and they're it's just very like, uh, it's very roadhouse you know he's got the uh, yeah he, he keeps the the spare tire in his trunk because his yep. tires get slashed every night Slash all the time <laughs> i do love that he just continues to drive with it well yeah, the entire, yeah, he, yeah. I, I'm about to be like, yeah, he doesn't even get bothered to get it placed, but my car windshield's broken right now because I can't get somebody out to fix it for two weeks. So, you know, I'm in the same boat. <laughs> so you know how Donald Sutherland feels. You know how I, I do feels. know how Donald Sutherland feels right now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, then you kind of have for a little bit this, again, we talked, or Coffin say was trying to build this like kind of tragic love story between Elizabeth and, and Matthew. And it's you're spending a lot of time early on of them kind of having scenes together and bonding in some way. Um, and then you have, or when they're driving again, talk about this idea of like, as I think you put late or in one of the interviews that, that these two Matthew and Elizabeth are former hippies who have now like are now working for the government. Mm-hmm. They're working with the thing they stood up against essentially. Um, and how they've like, and, and one thing he talked about was when the, when the, the man runs up saying they're coming. They're like, oh man, what's that guy doing? Like basically like he's, he's the issue not thinking like, oh my God, what's going on? Mm-hmm. It's just more like, oh, someone will take care of it. Yeah. And like the, this, this idea that like, we don't, we don't want to be bothered by those people. We're in a higher up place now. It's just how, how these characters change so much and how, again, Matthew, while it's close to Elizabeth keeps his friend of Jack, who's still the beatnik kind of poet, Mm-hmm. separate from her in a way because they don't meet until the party scene for the first time i think he's like oh this is the elizabeth that i've heard so much about mm-hmm. is the thing um but i do love that that crew that they kind of assemble there it, it feels yes. like a very realistic group of friends in like the city you know it's you've got like I the agree. poet you've got the like esteemed psycho psychologist uh yeah. friend and then the, and they're all just like they're all just you know it's it's that kind of like modern friend group that you would not have in like a like a 50s 1950s it was like no. it'd probably be like if you made this in the 50s it would be like maybe their neighbors were you know yes maybe like a fred and ethel kind of thing but it's like no yeah. we go out we go to book readings and we have we have friends meet these yeah meet these random people and and some of them write self-help books some of them are like pissed they didn't write the self-help book <laughs> some of them kind of have odd jobs is the thing like mm-hmm. working at a mud bath place. Like that's all just a very kind of unique experience where it's all people are all doing different things. I have, yeah, I have friends that are that way too, where it's some are working in film, some are working film on and off and they do side hustles to make money, which is kind of the thing. But, uh, but I love to bring in here is, you start seeing it more and more as we goes on, but this neo-noir style, this noir style in the movie and how Kaufman and Chapman use San Francisco 
really well. Mm-hmm. Like legitimately, they use its architecture and its really landscape as a way to build uh the build suspense, but also like make it unsettling. Like we talk about lines in movies and how how if you if you can't uh, it's like if you have a canceled angle where the your horizon line is tilted it can create an unsettling feeling and with this movie because everything in san francisco for the most part is like on a hill they have all these scenes where it's like the 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 lines of the street are just like diagonal and mm-hmm. it's this weird feeling yeah everything everything's it. off yeah like the biggest one is when nimoy is like leaving his house or whatever and, and saying goodbye to them and it's really weird like the cars are like it's almost like the cars are like almost just like parked in a weird angle and i was like they look they're about to like fall down the hill and nimoy's walking i was like this just makes me feel weird and something's about <laughs> to happen and then it's the big reveal that nimoy's actually wh- is possibly a pod person or at least is involved with the pod people in some way which means he's a pod person um when he meets up with with art hinkle and people we know beforehand as pod people in a car and you're like oh shit like and they're about to get like basically screwed and they don't realize it yet is the thing um but yeah and then uh what's another scene that you have i one of my favorite scenes in the movie i i this past time i like rewound rewound it and watched it like three times um when they go to uh elizabeth's house to get the body um you know when they've called the cops and and he's like you know there's this extra they've already found the the copy of jeff goldblum and now he's gone to like rescue her and found the other body and he's like this is how we'll get her this is how we'll get art hinkle we'll go bring the cops and the way that scene is shot is it's like all handheld and it's just like in everybody's faces and it's jumping the line like crazy and then there's this one like handheld push into like right into art hinkle's face where it's just like you know like this guy knows exactly what's going on and he's he's lying about it um it's just it's so good and the the soundtrack like heading into that scene the soundtrack is like very eerie and um that's it's such a good everyone plays it so well it's you know it's it's sutherland is is near manic at this point He, he he's finally realized like something really bad is going on and Hinkle is just like I, I, I might have to press charges. Like I don't know. And Nimoy's like trying to clear everything over. But everyone, yeah. everyone is just so good in that scene. Yeah, I love. There's a, the moment when when Nimoy steps in. He's like, "Excuse me, I'm Doctor So and So." And the cops like, "Oh man, my wife loves your books. It like changed her <laughs> life." And then again, like once they all leave, it's like everyone just goes to like like a reset form. Ooh. Like they're like it was all an act basically for them. Um. Yeah, it's really, it, it, it's it's. He had like when they look outside and it's like the pots and stuff that make that like that's where the body was. Mm-hmm. I don't know where he did, he's. I don't, I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> he's the one that took her body. He took he took her. Yeah. And like you took her. <laughs> well, yeah, I took her. I took her away from him. Well, that's kind of kidnapping, man. He's like, um, no, no, no. But she's she's fine. And they're like, okay, well, if she's fine, then why are we here? It's like no, the body. And then again, after all that, and then you had the Nemo reveal, but like then just talk about the paranoia and everything. Sutherland going from like phone booth to phone booth and like the like the, the crazy streets of San mm-hmm. Francisco. Like it's and like the 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 overlapping voiceovers that he's getting pushed from place to place and no one's wanting to talk to him. And it 
but you have this thing that son, he's still being watched the entire time. Oh, don't do this. Don't do that. Like, we'll take care of it. Don't you worry. And it's just really, it's unsettling feeling is the thing. And you're just like, he has nowhere to turn, no one to trust. And it's also this, again, building this idea of almost like a distrust of government in a way where government's now starting to get involved in this in some way where they're not listening to him at all, essentially. Mm-hmm. So I think that was one thing that they t- Kaufman talked about the original was that the in the original they just quarant the government quarantines the place at the beginning or whatever or at the end or whatever and they become kind of like heroes in the way. Now we're putting it to where like these people can take over the government mm-hmm. and change everything essentially. And then you kind of have all this like once they 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 get in the house and it's Goldblum and Cartwright and and Adams and Sutherland and it's like they realize they're being targeted essentially mm-hmm. and 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 for one at the moment when they all go to sleep and all the like you see like Sutherland's outside sleeping oh god it's so good it's, it's so, so good. good and you and, you, and then they reveal there's actually pods outside. And then you see the like white kind of like whispers or whatever that start. It's done so well, like crawling through the gla- gr- grass to get to Sutherland and the pods start opening up and the flower that you saw in the beginning that was much smaller is now bigger. And you have all these pods coming out, people coming out and you're seeing like, like Sutherland's eyes rolling in the back of his head and everything. Uh, it's just, it's a great sequence mm-hmm. and terrifying. It's like, yeah. It's birthing out like copies of them, but then there's also like this like fetus that comes out that you're like not yeah. really sure who it's supposed to be. Yeah, and again, I talked about earlier like when they find the 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 basically Goldblum's body in the bathhouse where it's like it's a it's a fetus, but isn't an adult. It's it's, it's very odd of how it's it's very unique kind of way to approach it where it's like is it is it a fetus? Is it an adult? What's it look like? Like it's it doesn't have fingerprints there's no shape to it fully yet and then you see it grow very quickly uh as time goes on um mm-hmm. but yeah and then and cartwright because i think kaufman talked about how cartwright's character nancy is like she's the one that's still like tied to the old days of the, of the hippie movement or whatever mm-hmm. so she's kind of the first one to spot everything mm-hmm. is the thing because she's the one that can spot when things are going wrong and the conforming qualities or whatever um and so of course she's also the last one by the end to like she's she's the one to figure out like not to go to sleep and yeah she's the one to figure out kind of how to fool them yeah and so she and so basically was kind of saying that it's it's like you can prolong it but it will still come and get you at some point Mm -hmm. is the thing um but and so then yes then they have them running away goldblum sacrificing himself basically Mm -hmm. to, to draw the people like that's all great again paranoid sequence suspense thriller when they're running away from everyone the score then, when they're going down the stairs there's that yeah. long like wooden staircase and the score is just all drums it's wild yeah. it's so good yeah I, so i'll talk about some sc- the score stuff later but yeah it's it's like it's good great throughout the mm-hmm. score the sound everything is so good in this movie and then and then we they get to they get back to the their their the government building they work in and then that's when everything kind of goes to shit mm-hmm. uh goldblum walks in and is like it would just be easier if we just like go went to sleep why yeah. do we have to not go why, why do we why do we have to do all this and you're just like oh he's turned yeah um and then you meet cartwright again <laughs> and that's when she and you don't know if like is she one of them yeah they're like how'd you get uh, in the building if you're if yeah. you're like a real one and and she's like oh just just pretend to have no emotion and they don't notice yeah. you yeah 
And then and then lead this. I'm just getting to the scene that I want to talk about this when they're like outside and they're like, oh, going to the pod people and that dog. <laughs> I love a because, I love an alien invasion movie with a dog with a human face. Because they because because it's the movie's never gone that far yet. Yeah. It feels like yeah. And then it goes that far. This is and actually I, if if for any Patreon subscribers out there, this this will be the second time we've talked about a dog with a human face this month. Oh yeah, bones. <laughs> this was done better. This was done better. We'll talk about how. Yeah, it was done well, later. I mean, I guess because because we see, you know, that's that's the it's it's the kind of uh, homeless man that that Donald Sutherland is familiar with and his dog, and yeah. we see a shot where they're sleeping next to each other, and there's a pod next to him that's obviously feeding off of him and Sutherland steps on the pod as yeah, he goes it. past it. So I guess that like messed up the the process. Yeah, he kicks it because you start seeing like blood see coming out of the pod. Yeah, yeah. 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 So ba- yeah, it's basically just like it's like dropping yeah, it's it's like it, it created a deformity basically yeah. where it blended the two together. And it's a it's a trip. Yeah. Like legitimately when you see that dog with a human face it's yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah and i love that it's like they're like okay this will be pretty easy we just pretend to have no emotion and then they walk outside and it's like dog with a what human the- face they're like ah no <laughs> it's like what the hell like it's and cartwright just like doesn't react at all and mm-hmm. it's just like she knows how to do this um and then and then we get to where it's like they're hiding of course they had like their their kiss at one point is a thing where that it's like you had this love story hopefully them trying like escaping together mm-hmm. um i love the taxi scene as they talk as they're trying to leave, get the airport and they go, i don't they go I, back. I, you know what i do have to call out one thing in the script that i don't love okay uh when nimoy is like pitching them on like just surrendering to it and and he's like oh there's like no need for pain no need for love and she just immediately turns she's like i love you and it's like <laughs> it's very on the nose that's that's fair that's fair that's fair yeah that scene is again but that also kind of goes what kaufman's trying to do is that that initial scene about no anxiety no fear that was in the original movie that's mm-hmm. like those lines in the original movie um and it feels like kaufman again trying to like like again make the is it on the nose but make the love story the core of just like but i love you because i think they don't say love in this one but they say love in the previous one or something um and so he was really kind of trying to like like go with the idea of love and humanity and everything but yes that is fair point (laughs) it just feels like i love you um and yeah and then you have the scene where they're when they're going to the they're they're trying to get on the, the boat to leave and that's when you just realize, oh wait, the boat's just there to like take the pods yeah. else elsewhere. And when he gets back and she's being turned because she fell asleep, and it's again a horrific scene where it's like he's 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 like telling her like it's gonna be okay, we're gonna get out, and then she just like dissolves in his arms, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden she pops up on the other side, just like, hey. Mm-hmm. Fully naked and just like, you know, you should just go to sleep too. Like, it's like, we can be together. We'll be okay. Don't worry about it. And it's just, it's a great, just like quickly, how quickly she lost her humanity with that transition. Mm-hmm. Um, Anything wants, or any, or more scenes at the end. Cause there's a lot, there's a little bit more there. Yeah. Yeah. That. I mean, we, we, you know, we talked about the, um, we, we talked about the kind of soullessness of the ending and, and, 
but but it is you know it's one that's one of those movie twists that's you know spoilers to anyone um the i i had already seen the that scene like you know i'd watch i used to watch all those like afi things i'm sure there was like afi's like top twists of all time or something like that but um i had already seen that scene before before the first time i saw this movie it's very it's kind of a very iconic twist so i do wonder like how effective it is like because because the you know he has this big heroic moment where he burns down at least some of the pods like one this, this factory where they're producing pods um but then the next time we see him he is what we're meant to assume is like going figured out that the only way to do it is like to go along with it. And yeah. I think the way that he kind of follows Brooke Adams and like kind of looks at her longingly from across the room, we're supposed to be like, Oh man, now he's like stuck living this life where like he has to pretend to be one of them. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's already a very tragic ending. Um, he's cutting newspapers the same way that he yeah, was yeah, before. Yeah. But I, I don't, yeah. I don't know how effective it is. Like, I wonder if there's anyone out there who doesn't, know what's coming and and would be like fully uh because the you know the way people talk know. about it the way everybody's like it's one of the it's this huge twist twist like it, they, yeah. it had to have gotten people the first time it happened but um but yeah it, it it's really it's one of those like great kind of horror moments where it is like equally as scary as it is sad and and you know you're fully invested in the story and the character so when it happens it is like horrifying but it's also deeply tragic and mm-hmm. and so it's very effective um you know when you when you you and uh the character find out that he's been assimilated at some point yeah but yeah i like that it gets a little bit of a glimmer of hope if you because if i oh i think it's because we're perceiving it's oh he feel he feels like he's a little different like he still he's, he's still like some sort of emotion in his eyes and then the twist with rocket cartwright coming up and like Matthew and then just turns and you hear the screech that you hear. And what's great. I, I'm going to rewatch the beginning of it is that when Brooke Adams is walking to work, there's a dude running. They show a guy in a close up, an older guy kind of running around. And then she comes in the frame and it becomes focused on her, but you see the guy running in the background. And then you just hear that same shriek, like way off in the distance. Yeah. You're like, Oh, this is all happening. Mm. The, from the very beginning, basically. Mm-hmm. All right. So on set life, when prepping for the movie, Kaufman as director of photography, Michael Chapman, talked about trying to capture that film noir feel through color cinematography. Since the neo-noir movement had not really taken hold in Hollywood, Hollywood yet, there weren't many color films that had used the noir aesthetic. So Kaufman and Chapman would look through a lot of old noir films during this period to, to prep and incorporate that look into the film. At this point, Chapman was becoming one of Hollywood's most talented cinematographers. His first film was Hal Ashby's The Last Detail. And mm-hmm. after that, he worked on Kaufman's The White Dawn. So he also shot The White Dawn. Uh, and then he also worked on Scorsese's Taxi Driver and The Last Waltz. And before wow. all that, Ch- Chapman was also a camera operator for the legendary Gordon Willis uh, on The Godfather. And then he later worked with Bill Butler on Jaws. So he was just on so many big projects at this time. Sound editor Ben Burt, who had helped create many of the signature sounds from Star Wars the year before, mm. also added this film's, the film's ambiance in this movie. Natural sounds that mix the sea's more industrial noises give way to just the latter as the film progresses. So the first half is more natural with crickets and, and, and kind of just regular human noises. By the second half is a more mechanical uh, sound, grinding noises of the garbage trucks, uh, uh, cars, 
that is common but becomes more horrific as it comes as it pro, as it goes on um and kind of especially when it comes like when the when the discarded bodies are are, are being seen the pre like all kind of put in the garbage trucks it's like amplified mm-hmm. basically uh bert also designed the shriek when pod people see a surviving human a sound coffin said was composed of many elements including a pig squeal is what it was uh, Bert Bert also used the sound of the heartbeat from his pregnant wife's ultrasound for the pod growing. Oh wow! When you hear when you hear the pod growing, all the special effects were created live for the camera. Uh, the scene at the beginning where the pods travel through space from their dead home world to San Francisco was apparently one of the simplest, according to Kaufman. He goes, "I found some uh, uh, some material in an art store, and I paid twelve bucks for a big vat of it, and they would drop it into solutions." and reverse the film to make it look like the, the, the kind of liquid is moving mm. uh, in, in a, in a unnatural way for the shocking dog effect with a man's face. Coppins of the production fabricated a mask, the banjo player's face to put on the dog. Uh, and he said, we put something on the lips, of the mask, so the tongue would lick at it and the tongue <laughs> would go through the mask. And that's what, that's what, get, that's what gets the weird feeling when the tongue, <laughs> comes out of the human's mouth and you're like what the hell is that perhaps the most entertaining special effect for people online uh is brooke adams natural ability to roll her eyes <laughs> in the opposite way if you look at every almost like every other letterbox review is just like what is she doing with her eyes it's great yeah so it's when she's with sutherland and and it was an unscripted gag it came out of coppins kind of of process of working with actors to find the truth of the moment as he said the humanistic behavior that can mean lacking on the written page so he said i said brooke what can you do while we're do- while you're doing this scene is there anything that's just like kind of different and she sort of jokingly rolled her eyes uh, and basically they roll in the opposite way and he mm-hmm. said, it's kind of amazing human feet which just goes to sh- it goes to something the humans can do and would do and pods would never do mm-hmm. and the way she laughs the way he laughs is a very kind of he's a very core moment between in their relationship basically um but people love it like literally all <laughs> they're like what did she do with her eyes uh coffin would preach that a lot with the actors about trying to find the human moments in the scene wanting them to feel fill the spaces between the dialogue with facial expressions he said often people on the set or a studio are so worried about getting content and content is not necessarily going to make the scene full of humanity or feel compassion and amusement and humor the film is notable for having a number of cameos in the movie are there any that you noticed before I go into them? No cameos. Um, There's a massive one that I did not catch, and I had to go back and rewatch it in the opening. What? What? When? You, when you first start seeing people? No, I, I guess not. On the swing set, because you have kids when you see a priest swinging yes, in the back. Yeah. Robert Duvall. You know what? I thought that looked like him. I, I do. Duvall. I do remember being like, "That looks like Robert Duvall," and then they like never yep. addressed it again. And I was like, "Oh, I guess it wasn't." Because because of the movie uh, that the the Great Northfield Minnesota raid. Because mm-hmm. when he played when he played Jesse James, he was basically friends with Duvall, and he's like, "Hey, you want to come be in this movie real quick?" And so they got him a priest. They went and got him a priest outfit and put him in a priest thing. And according to Kaufman, he's the first pod person you see in the movie because then it cuts to Duvall's point of view of watching the sw- it's the swinging back and forth. You see it from his point of view. Another cameo in the movie 
is the film's the original film's director don siegel who plays the role of the taxi driver oh who sets up sarlin adams mm-hmm. when they're trying to go to the airport Kaufman would have two cameo roles. One is a man who bothers someone at the phone booth when he's doing the kind of paranoia montage, but also is one of the officials on the uh, during that like on the phone calls. Hmm. The film's D- DP Michael Chapman played the janitor at the uh, at the office that they see when they come in, and he's like sitting against the wall and like turns towards them. That's their cinematographer. But possibly the most famous cameo in the movie was kevin mccarthy the star of the original movie and he comes up running to them saying they're coming uh and and kind of tries to warn all the people of san francisco while he's not playing the same character from the original movie coffin meant mccarthy's cameo as a nod to the original film saying it had been he'd been metaphorically running around the country since the original (laughs) film trying to warn people while they were filming that scene coffin recalls that a naked man was lying on the street and he woke up and recognized McCarthy saying, are you that guy from the invasion of the body snatchers? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we're making a remake of it. And the guy, the guy just goes, yeah, first one's better. <laughs> With that just, and I, haven't, like, I haven't seen this one yet. Yeah. Coffin's like, we're in the middle of shooting the film. and We already got our first review, <laughs> but McCarthy and Siegel would play a more important role in the making of this film. Besides just being in, a, in the movie, Coffin was trying to figure out, how to end this version of the movie so he sought the help of don siegel who he was close with apparently the original movie had somewhat of an optimistic ending and siegel always hated it because apparently the studio is what made him put that Mm -hmm. in the movie and kevin mccarthy also hated the ending so it just so happens the day that siegel is meeting with kaufman to discuss the new movie mccarthy's at the studio filming something else and he stops by the office so the trio begin talking about the possibilities for a new ending because the ending at the time, I believe was Matthew and Nancy see each other in the streets with each of them giving one another a knowing look that they are still their original mm. selves. And that's how it would end. I mean, that's they still like eventually... a really tragic, like for anyone to it think is. that's like a happy ending. <laughs> it's like, that's yeah. the way the stu- studios are always just like, yeah, but I want, I want the hero to be alive at the end, but I'm like, what? Yeah. They're, they're just doomed to be like the only two people with yeah. consciousness in this whole city. Yeah. Like, um, But they would eventually land the twist ending of Matthew being a pod person, but they only told Robert Solo, the film's producer and the film screenwriter, WD Reichter. So they're the only ones that know they would not tell Sutherland until the night before filming because they were worried and they were worried that he wouldn't go for it because it's such a big shift but he was down they didn't even tell cartwright before filming she found out when they did the scene so her reaction is basically her reaction to like in the moment no no Uh, they they also didn't tell any studio executives because kaufman didn't want to suffer the same outcome as siegel did with the original movie so the studio executives only learned about it when they watched the full cut of the movie at George Lucas's house in San Francisco. And there's nothing they could do apparently. <laughs> and that's when the film finished. And that takes us to aftermath. So the movie was released December 22nd, 1978. And it would pretty much be a, a success immediately. Uh, it would make $1.2 million the box office's opening weekend, being released on 445 screens. It would gross a total of $25 million in the U.S. alone, which is probably about $115 million today. Um, 
there was there was kind of a as Kaufman pointed out, there's kind of it kind of really latched onto the time period because apparently right before then there was the Jonestown mass suicide is what it was mm-hmm. that happened a month before. No, oh, wow. and he said that this he says that was the case. A lot of people from San Francisco were looking at the were looking for a better world and suddenly found themselves in poddom and it was failure fa- uh, fatal and it could not have been a more pointed reason for watching the movie because this was kind of something. That, Jonestown, there's more like more stuff has come out about it than what was initially said initially like in the original story. Mm-hmm. Research, it's I, I, there was a TikTok about it that I knew nothing about it because the the idea of drinking the Kool Aid comes mm-hmm. from this thing. And Flavor it was, yeah. Apparently, it was way more, way more dark than the initially reported. Basically, and how yeah. these, some of these people were like basically forced into doing this. Yeah, yeah. They didn't the, do it, like, they didn't do it on purpose. Yeah, they, they yeah. had armed guards like making everyone yeah. drink it. Yeah. Yeah. But the term drink the Kool-Aid, like taking what's given is the idea of conforming in the in the eyes of the people of 1978 at this point in time. Um so it really had a massive impact on that. Critically it also did very well. So I'll I'll name our three big critics we talk about. Gene Siskel, three mm-hmm. out of four stars said one of the more entertaining films that turned out on the, during this dismal Christmas movie season, he said. <laughs> the biggest critic who loved it was Pauline Kael. Of course she did. She loves this this, she, this era of like she, filmmaking. Was Yeah, she, she said it may be the best film of its kind ever made. All right. Okay, Pauline Kael. That's what Kale. she said. It was, it was uh, undiluted pleasure and excitement is what it was. Um, uh, Roger Ebert, while liked it, was like, "That's a little too much, Pauline." Like he was, he was apparently, he apparently thought it was not as good as she said it, but he thought it was good. Um, comparing it, talking about Watergate and how people were, people were talking about keeping it tabs on at that time. Some people thought it was they thought it was bad and laughable. Um, Jan, uh, Maslin gave it a said it was it was it was less crazy and more just funny. Which some people read this as a satire, of like a funny satire is the thing if they wanted to. Hmm. Um, but it would receive a nomination at the WGA for Best Drama Adapted from Another Medium. It would be nominated for like several sci-fi kind of awards. And pretty soon it would like gain a following just based off of the statements it's trying to make. Talking about consumerism and kind of how it takes over our lives and the death of the counterculture movement and how really it's, it's interesting kind of look at like the eve of the eighties when everything becomes materialist. Cause I think they, they, they pinpoint a line in the movie um, about like how, uh, let's see. Yeah. You'll, uh, you'll have the same life, same, same clothes, same car kind of saying that like all they focus on is like the material things you have, mm-hmm. not about the, the connections or whatever you yeah. make. Um, yeah, they're they're literally like, but we're not gonna have emotion. And they're like, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, and so that that has built and built over the years of looking at the kind of statements making on culture at the time. So there's this like interesting watershed moment of the end of the '70s into the '80s, where all those hippies, all those kind of rebels, uh, have now just become part of the establishment. Yeah, it's, this is kind of like the lead up into like the Reagan era, and yeah. then like Fight Club is like the like coming down off of that mountain <laughs> yeah yeah so about 20 years worth yeah. of, of that because they all talk about like jeffrey is a big example like 
he's watching TV all the time and has like the technology, like the headphones that he mm-hmm. has. And like babe, the, game. Sa- the game's on, babe. I want to watch the game. Um, but yeah. And how pod people with this movie in the fifties movie kind of made that part of the vernacular, even though pod people's never actually said in this movie is mm-hmm. the thing. Um, it became a part of pop culture at that time. And now it's considered by many as one of the best remakes ever and possibly one that actually surpasses the mm-hmm. original. It's debatable. I really love the original as well. I'm going to rewatch it this this month for the for our Patreon. But like they're both very unique at the at the time, but it's an interesting kind of again take on the city effect of it all and how mm-hmm. especially picking San Francisco um and what was happening at that moment in time with these with with the cities and and, and kind of the the places they're seen as liberal and and progressive and how that takes over even there basically yeah so with all that thomas what worked about this movie uh i mean i think just like the filmmaking in general works the the every technical aspect of it is just kind of like i said what i what i love about kind of late 70s filmmaking it the 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 camera work the practical effects the sound the cast it's such a such a fun like eclectic cast of like people you would not think to like lead a studio sci-fi horror the the 70s were amazing with that weren't they like Like, we had elliot Elliot gould as a leading man yeah we had we had walter matthau as a leading man we have jeff goldblum this is just paving the way for the fly you know it's it's fantastic yeah uh yes yes (laughs) uh um, yeah, it's just it. everything about it. That's that's what I love about this version of it is is is, you know, kind of like 50s kind of the point of 50s sci fi was kind of the escapism of it. And it would always start like very real and like small town and like the, the real world and then kind of get, mm-hmm. you know, uh, bigger in science fiction. And this one is like it's it's so tactile and, and gritty and, and the whole time you're just in San Francisco and you're like, yeah, this absolutely could could happen like every every bit of it feels authentic i think um yeah and and it just completely grounds the whole idea of of aliens and and, and invasion and pod people and all that yeah i agree i agree uh did anything not work about this movie thomas uh i mean i think that that line that i already shouted out that one line yeah, yeah um i think the i do think the end the, the third act drags on a little bit and mm. like there's a little too much like oh let's run over here and now let's like run over here um it there, there's a little too much like running and hiding which okay. i mean the score is killing it during that scene so who am i to talk yeah. but but like from from like everyone in the city is turned on us till the end i think goes goes longer than practically possible of like <laughs> how long they, they managed to like evade all those people mm-hmm. yeah yeah i get that um all right i have anything with that i mean what worked out and, and says but yeah again kaufman and chapman shoot the hell out of this movie like it's like they really do score is great again it's it's a i really forgot goldman was in this movie that shows you mm-hmm. i haven't seen this i forgot he was in it um but yeah yeah kaufman someone who i i love i love the right stuff it, i love that movie and, and he's he's someone as a filmmaker who like 
never draws attention to himself being very flashy, but does like yeah, kind yeah, of he creates he, he does create this like very like this verisimilitude with his filmmaking. It's, it's very real and very grounded, but also within that is like some very interesting work i think because like nothing about the right stuff you think like oh man like the camera work but like that's also the point of it and it and it all works yeah no he 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 really is not a like a showy director but again it's like not a showy director but a, a very just uh experienced director and very mm-hmm. I mean, again also impressive and like he he all of his movies are just very they're not the same genre they're not the same time i remember i love that he did called the wanderers which he did like a year after this mm-hmm. like more of a coming of age new york like like 50s movie and like he he just he made some really great films and i want to explore more of his stuff is the thing because i mm-hmm. actually have never seen the right stuff and that's one of the big ones there so you gotta watch um I hear good things about the unbearable lightness of being mm-hmm. how, how a lot of his films kind of have like a European touch to them as the thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, last of I want to see by Kaufman. All right. Some film facts real quick. So the guy playing the banjo, mm-hmm. it wasn't the actor playing the banjo. It was someone else that played the banjo that, you, that just recorded the, the music later on. Mm-hmm. And that was Jerry Garcia from the grateful dead. <laughs> okay. <laughs> just did that for some reason um the the composer denny zeitlin is an american jazz pianist composer he composed this movie mm-hmm. it is the only score he ever did for a film oh man yeah so just one and done yeah just came in and killed it yeah as, as i said earlier uh this movie has been remade several times uh one in 1993 from Abel Ferrara, I believe is who directed. Yeah, Abel Ferrara did, the, did that one, mm-hmm. and then 2007, uh, called The Invasion, starring Nicole Kidman, Daniel and Craig, and Daniel Craig. That's mm. correct. That was like his first kind of big one after he was Bond. Yeah. So, awards, Thomas, the Beatrice Strait Award, actor, actual in scenes that kills it. Who's who's limited? Art Finkel um, is limited. Uh, uh, Art, Art, yeah, Art, Art, Art Hendel, sorry, Art Hendel. Hendel. I've been saying Hinkle. We're th- we're think- Hinkle. We said Hinkle and Hinkle, I think. Art Hendel, sorry. Hendel. Um, uh, he's limited. Would we give? No, Leonard, Leonard Nimoy, is, we'll talk about him next. Uh, uh, yeah, he's in supporting. I think he's in supporting. Um, uh, I guess Art, Art Hendel probably is the best one. Um, I think he has the biggest impact. Like, I mean, I could, I could throw Don Siegel in there as a taxi driver. <laughs> But I think Hendel is, in terms of what, what the he guy, does, the guy at the mud bath, the guy, oh, guy, the guy, the guy come, coming out of the bath. <laughs> oh yeah, and she's just like kind of, she's like getting mad at him. Mm-hmm. She's like, oh, come help me, come help me. Um, no, I, I think Art Hendel's a good one to do. I think, I think he's great in it. I think you get to the kind of the the differences between the two characters. Mm-hmm. The, yeah. The he really, he really sells that for like the two shots that we see, like the original version of him. Yeah. It, it is so apparent immediately when we get the, like new, the pod version that we're like, this is not right. Yeah. I do no, I love agree. the, um, I love the, the woman, the, the woman who like is so upset about her husband, who's talking to Leonard Nimoy. Um, and I also really like the, guy at the laundromat that's like that's not my wife yeah that's not, and then, la- then later is like oh no she's fine yeah, yeah, she's, yeah, back she's to, good now she's, yeah 
and you realize um you know what's going on um let's go art handle i think i think he i think he's good again talking about your one of your favorite scenes was the the scene when they're at yes. the house and they're at the cops and he's he's really good in that scene i love that one also shout out i i still recommend the brood to like so many people especially so many people tell me that they are cronenberg fans and then i'm like oh yeah the brood and they're like oh i've never seen that one i'm like that <laughs> might be my favorite cronenberg movie and he pops up it he's also good in uh um i feel like i feel like i i, I might diss him a little bit in a uh, in black christmas but he had a great coat yeah he, he, he <laughs> i love his coat, coat in that movie he yeah. has his coat he has a great coat in black christmas that big fur coat oh it's amazing um and then next we have the Annie Potts X Factor Award Sporting Actor Actress of the Most Memorable. Is it Goldblum? I feel like <sighs> is he is he too big? No, I don't think he's too big. I think Goldblum, Cartwright, and Nimoy you could mm. you could all throw in here as a thing. Um, I think considering it's like Goldblum's like first like big yeah uh, part outside of thank God it's Friday. Thank God it's Friday. Yeah, um, yeah of course. I think he's great in this. I, I, I really, I mean, I, you know, he's, he's Jeff Goldblum, but yeah, I mean, I, I love again, how, like how just pissed he gets at Larry Nimoy throughout the entire movie <laughs> when he's, when they're almost like, you, you called me in the middle of the night and woke me up. Oh, I'm like, sorry. He, like, woke slams, you up. He, like slams a bookshelf. <laughs> sorry. Oh, sorry. It's the worst thing in the world that I woke you up in the middle of the night. My apologies um yeah you're getting to see like like a little bit of unhinged goldblum moments i I, i'll i'll go with that because and i like he's at the the stuff at the party like he he feels like the again like he he really captures the like that guy holding on to the i'm gonna be a writer i'm gonna do this like but like holding like the odd jobs but he's still married he's holding on to the old times basically Mm -hmm. um and then again when he when he comes in after he's turned, he's like, it's from Beverly. I went to sleep, Matt, Matthew. Like, all we just need to go is go sleep. <laughs> it's been fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll go Goldblum. We'll go Goldblum there. Oh, yeah. But but Nimoy is great. I think Nimoy is great because mm-hmm. I think I think the way they play off his persona in the, in the first half is just so good. How you Yeah, think and I, I the, think the way that he plays it in general is like you never know because no. he is this kind of like cold and, and clinical even like as their friend is like a very like matter of fact person. So it's like, he, he's the only one that, that you're just like, I never know where he lies in the whole movie. Yeah. Cause he is kind of like that. <laughs> he is kind yeah. of a pod person in the first place. Yeah. Well, it, when he comes to the, when he comes to the, uh, cause someone kind of brings up the party, which we didn't talk that much about, but the party scene when he's like trying to calm Elizabeth. Oh, like it's probably just this or that. Like, has this happened? Blah, blah. And like, like, is he, is he a pod person yet? Mm-hmm. And he's just, is, is he just like trying to give her advice or is he a pod person who's trying to get her off the path of finding out what's going on? It's a very interesting look at his character after you find out the reveal of it is the mm-hmm. thing. Um, but I think in terms of, of who just gives kind of a, who, who draws your attention when he ever, they come on screen and this movie it's, it's Goldblum mm-hmm. is the thing as like a supporting player. And then finally, the Gene Hackman MVP award, person who carries the movie, director, actor, composer, cinematographer, etc. For me, it's Kaufman, mm-hmm. but maybe because I told the whole story about him, and so I have this connection of like, this guy needed a win. Yeah. 
at this yeah. moment in time. Like you have the Josie Wells stuff happen, which Raiders I think happens after this, but he was at least writing it beforehand. Yeah, yeah. that doesn't go. Star Trek doesn't go. He kind of and, and like he had and basically this is his first also box or first off ever box off success from him like none of the other ones really made a lot made money or is the thing mm-hmm. so he this is one he really needed and i think he does it incredibly well also too tackling a remake which at that point in 70s and in, in like, the yeah, new hollywood really movement it's it's kind of like a weird thing to do and mm. like almost like you can't you can't come up with your own idea philip <laughs> you gotta remake a you gotta remake a 50s movie god yeah i um yeah, I back that. I I could I could make a argument for Sutherland, especially just like the the like the street cred that Sutherland gives this movie by doing it. You know, yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's he had a very, you know, it, it, you you we were talking about the actors of this era, and and I mean it would be similar to like if Elliot Gould was in this movie. You know, they yeah. had this kind of like art house street cred at this point so to do a movie like this is immediately like when you see like it's it's this it's like late 70s and donald sutherland's in it you're like oh there must be like something kind of special it's not just like a straightforward like studio sci-fi film um but yeah i think i think that's i think that's part of kaufman like getting sutherland is is part of the grand picture of kaufman putting this movie together yeah i agree with that okay so we'll go with kaufman all right final questions for this movie Thomas, if you're making a modern film today for the, of this film, or making a modern version of this movie, which mm-hmm. they're trying to do again, who would you cast? Not not Daniel Craig and Nicole Kidman. No. <laughs> okay, okay, it's okay. back. It's back in San Francisco. Back in San I Francisco. Mean, okay. It's like maybe you're dealing with like the Edward Snowden type stuff a little bit more because this this is what could be. I don't know. Mm. Um, January sixth. <laughs> could do, there, there is that great line of like maybe he's a republican is what, <laughs> what says at one point hmm, okay I'm, I'm trying to place like what age range sutherland yeah. and like brooke adams are, are meant to be in, in this movie so he is this point is 43 um i have a feeling she is younger yes. in this movie uh she is she would have been 29 oh okay is what it is. Not not a terrible, not a yeah. terrible cat. A little, a little bit older than than I thought she was in this. Um, yeah. Lead somebody. He's had a few. He's he's missed out on a couple of roles lately. I want to I want to throw him one because I think he's a very good actor, mm-hmm. and I think he could be a could sell a, a government uh, kind of bureaucracy guy. Um, mm-hmm. Is is Nicholas Holt? Okay. I I, I like that. Yeah, he, he's had a, he's had a very interesting run. Like he was in the great, just got canceled. Um, he's probably been a few things. He's good. Okay, so he's he's Sutherland is what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, for Elizabeth, let me look at let me look at the age. I think they're around for uh, they're actually the exact same age. So boom, nailed it. Uh, okay. she's done she's done a little bit of horror but i think she could do like more elevated horror as much as i do uh, enjoy her in those movies but i think uh melissa barrera uh yeah i, would, I like I would, her a lot yeah uh 
my wife's been watching Vita, From which Spring. was kind of like the show that like mm-hmm. launched her. And I've 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 been in yeah. and out. I've, I'm not sitting down and watching it, but she's like very good in like a like a dramatic role and and having her in Scream. Yes, she's great. I, I like the new Scream movies, and I think she's very good in them. But I would like to see her given something a little bit meatier. So I agree with that. I like that for I'm so trying to, for Leonard Nimoy is who I'm trying to think about. Hmm. Who, who would you, who would we do there? I mean, here, this is a different one, but like, I don't know if he'll play. But if you did Hanks, if you wanted to go off of like their persona and like think they're like a good-hearted person, and they end up being the villain in the end, Hanks is an interesting. Choice. I don't know that I would buy he them might, in like might a be, friend might, group. Might be, uh, well, you know who I did, who I do really like, uh, who could fit is I, I. I don't think I. I watched. I didn't add it to my list because we watched it like a month ago but i finally saw bodies 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 which i really mm-hmm. enjoyed thoroughly enjoyed but i think lee pace could be lee pace really good in this role yeah he's you, you gotta have somebody with like gravitas you know that you're like yes he would be like a well-respected uh you know yeah. doctor but also still be friends with friends enough with this crew to like put up with them you know okay okay um I can't do my usual thing for Jeff Gold because you gotta go Adam Driver as the, <laughs> as the, as the modern uh, Goldblum. Because um, I think he is. Um, how how old are the one the the? They're both thirty three. They're both thirty three. Okay, I think he's too big for this one. Uh, is is Lakeith because Lakeith actually do very well I think with this oh, yeah. role as Goldblum. But I think he I think he's a little too big. He's he's a he's a leading guy now or or. A supporting guy in a bigger film. Um, Do we throw it to our guy Adam Brody? I'll throw it to Adam Brody. I was gonna suggest Jack Quaid, but mm. uh, I, 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 I could, I could. That's, do that's Adam too Brody. scream. That's too scream. To that's, too, that's too. You're right. You're right. You're right. My apologies. My apologies. We'll, we'll go Adam Brody here. I love Adam Brody. Adam Brody's great. Um, for Nancy. Oh gosh, what's her name? Teresa Palmer. Hmm. I like Teresa Palmer. I know you do. We, we, yeah. We, um, Berlin Syndrome. We, we saw her. Yeah. Yeah. Super oh, yeah. Nice. She, she came to, she came to that class. She came to the class. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen her a lot. I haven't seen her in a while. I feel like she's, I she's about, she was doing like horror, you know, she was like doing some horror stuff. And I feel like maybe she got market corrected by Michael Monroe. Yeah. I was, that's who I was thinking of too. She's about to be in Gosling's The Fall Guy. Hmm. We'll go with Teresa Palmer. Therese Palmer as Nancy. We have uh, Adam Brody as Jack. We have Lee Pace as as a uh, uh, as a doctor. We have uh, Melissa Barrera as uh, Elizabeth, and then we have Nicholas Holt as Matthew. That's an interesting cast. Mm-hmm. That's that's actually feels like a realistic cast if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like if we would like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, it's it's not, we 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 budgeted for this cast. It's yeah, 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 exactly. Like we we want to get a lot of good play. We want a lot of role players. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And elevated roles is basically what it is. We just had like our expansion draft is what it, what it was. We just took some of the like lower players on on bigger teams and put them in a, um, a small market team. Is what it is. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I went really long on that tangent. My apologies or that uh, analogy. Um. All right. Next question. Does this film fit with any other genres, Thomas? Uh, I mean, it's it, it's sci-fi. It's it, you know, it's sci-fi horror. Um, like mm-hmm. I said, I think it kind of 
pod people became its own like sub sub genre for sure yeah um and this is one of you know obviously not the first it's a remake but i think i do think it kind of helped set the 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 tropes and kind of the standards for that sub sub genre but um but yeah i think definitely sci-fi and that weird kind of 70s period of of filmmaking whatever that (laughs) whatever you want to call that um yeah it definitely feels like it fits in with that with that era and and kind of the way it's commenting on society and everything and and this is not really a genre but i also think it's a period when san francisco's being used a lot in movies Mm -hmm. is the thing there's kind of like a San Francisco like type movie like era is the thing mm-hmm. like this this is I think I think time after time with Malcolm Malcolm McDowell is like seventy nine or so give or take uh played against Sam is early seventies mm-hmm. um San Francisco is a really 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 interesting location in movies that we don't see that much nowadays well that was i mean we, if you go way back to our what's up doc episode like that was yeah. they were like Same, yeah like nobody was really shooting in san francisco at that point when like yeah. polly platt went up to scout it it was like not really a place to shoot yeah it's like bullet had been there was the thing but but not a lot since then basically um and now we get ant-man movies there <laughs> Yeah, Bullet 68, Harold and Mod 71. Okay, so yeah, and What's Up Doc 72. It's not a lot. A um, little bit of Point Blake, Blank, but not all of it. Um, yeah. But yeah, then it, it it's, you know, when I was saying it fits in with like 70s, I'm, what I was going for was that kind of the, the paranoia cinema of the time. It, yes, it definitely yeah. fits in with all of that. Paranoia thrillers. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, so it's, it's those Bakula movies like Parallax View and all presence men another son of the movie clute mm-hmm. um which is around this time so yeah i agree with that and then how does this movie f- has this film fit within the genre of social horror i think you know it's it's one that it's a remake of one that very obviously i, I think this is such an interesting case because it's a remake of, of one that was very obviously pointed it very obviously had something to say about about uh communism and and uh mccarthyism much in the same way that you know the crucible um Mm -hmm. did throwing it back to arthur miller there you go um but it's so it's interesting that they that they did it again and Mm -hmm. and that they were a that they said you know it's it's what we've been talking about this idea of of setting your goals of like this is what we want to talk about it, to take mm-hmm. that and say okay that worked for mccarthyism now we want to take this story we want to take this structure and we want to apply it to all this like paranoia and conspiracy and conform con- you know conforming and, and everything that's going on right now and this kind of like the death of the the hippie movement and the the start of the yuppies um and so yeah i think it's a really interesting case of somebody seeing how that kind of social horror worked before and being like, I can, I can repurpose this yeah. for, for my own message now. And again, like almost with the idea of like the yuppie generation, like the consumerism, like again, like just sliding in there before it becomes a thing. It's mm-hmm. like, you're watching it build and then you hit it is the thing. It's like the death of the seventies was, it was a slow decline and then it ends in the eighties, basically. Mm-hmm. Like we, t- I think t- Dave and I talked about this with with Blowout. That Blowout feels like the end of the seventies, but just happens to happen in nineteen eighty one, basically. 
Um, and this feels like the beginning of that decline in a way where we're moving towards like, I think this movie comes out four years later. Mm -hmm. Uh, people hate the ending, <laughs> like legitimately yeah. hate the ending. Mm -hmm. Like there's a reason why you don't see an eighties version of this is the thing is because I think people, it, it would have been too depressing for people mm -hmm. is the thing. Cause people again, blow out. I think it's an amazing film and it's a depressing ending. People are like, this sucks. Um, because people at that point they won that escapism in every single movie. Mm -hmm. And this doesn't give you that. This just shows you that we all we all give up on things and conform in some way by the end of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and then the final questions for the genre, Thomas. What are some movies we didn't talk about that you want to shout out here before we end in the social horror? I mean, I one I think you and I both really like, which we talked about a little bit on a on a podcast we've done in the past which is why we kind of didn't include it this month yeah. but um people under the stairs is is one yep. I, I recommend to a lot of people kind of kind of in the same way i was just saying with like cronenberg and the brood when people were like i love wes craven yeah 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 i love wes craven and i'm like okay yeah, yeah. They're like oh scream you know nightmare and i'm like have you seen people under the stairs and um they're like, no and i'm like oh that one's a that one's a blast um, on Pe peacock for people who want to watch it yeah, yeah, yeah. Such a good time. Um, and then I, I just I just this year finally saw Barbarian, which I it was was yeah. one of those things I like everybody was like, Oh, there's this crazy twist, but I, so I like knew something was coming with it, but it, I, I managed to like avoid a lot of it. Um but it's so much fun and it's such yeah. a great like it's 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 such a great, very specific thing it's talking about, this kind of idea yeah. of of, of airbnb and 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 gentrification and, yeah um me too movement yeah, and all, yeah all these there, different there, there's things. so much that it's kind of very pointedly aimed at but it's also like a really really good horror movie with like great cast um mm -hmm. bill skarsgård is is fantastic in it um yeah i i had a blast in that one it was well worth all the hype and i that, that was one of those movies i like really wanted to go see when it was in theaters and I didn't get to it. And I watched it at home. And my like first thought was like, man, I wish I'd seen this in a theater full yeah. of people. And I, I hope yeah. it's, I hope it starts getting like screenings, like, you know, like midnight screenings. Cause that, that would be one I would love to go back and that's see. That's not bad. That's not a bad suggestion. Actually. That's that, that would be an interesting one just to see on the big screen. I agree with that. Um, yeah, I, I concur on people under the stairs. I just recently rewatched that, uh, with our movie group and, it's so fun. Like it's so good. Mm -hmm. Like, and and Craven was a guy. We talked about this. David and I did Night Living Dead because he gets mentioned talking about Romero. And I was like, Craven's those guys where he could do those horror movies where they're kind of a statement on society and like they they might they might have like full social issues or whatever. But he's very much aware. It's if it's this, if it's a uh, going on the stairs, if it's like even Serpent in the Rainbow. Mm -hmm. Um scream to some extent is the thing of just like the not so but like the rise of youth culture and 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 and, and media on on youth and everything in, in terms of pop culture what i was going to say was video or one that's been popping around a lot that i want to rewatch now because people are watching them much is uh american psycho mm. mm -hmm. i am seeing i, I noticed this and I, i've told me people i was like i'm seeing a lot more people watch or rewatch american psycho right now mm -hmm. and it's somewhat surprising like i i saw on my letterbox one day like 
three or four people watch American Psycho that don't know each other. And hmm. I was like, what's going on with American Psycho right now? So I feel like there's, if it's like kind of the, it's been m- like memed a lot in the past, over the past few years. And the like, cause the card stuff went, went, went pretty big at one point. I've, about I've also cards. seen, I've also seen like younger people kind of watching fight club for the first time. And I think it is this idea of these like movies that became red flag movies, you know, yeah. this idea that like, and I, I think it's totally valid where if you, if you tell me that fight club or that, American Psycho is like your favorite movie. I'm immediately going to think like, did you understand it? Or did you, <laughs> cause you know, that's the whole problem with fight club is like the guys who watched yeah. it and like, didn't realize that it was making fun of masculinity, which uh, American Psycho is the exact same way. And so I think a lot of like younger people were kind of brought up, especially if you're kind of the film crowd, you're like, that's not like, don't watch that one. That's like a red flag movie. And then, it, yeah. you know, and, and then as you get deeper into like film discourse online and you start, realizing like oh both of these were like parodies of the the audiences that have adopted them then you're i think you're you're starting to get kind of a younger generation who had avoided both of those movies be like oh i'm gonna watch this and then be like oh this is like this is making fun of all the people who now are like claim to be like super into it and i will say this i'm seeing a lot more women watch the movie as Mm -hmm. well it's also directed by a a, a woman Mm -hmm. mary heron uh, I'm also seeing a lot of people on TikTok dress up as Bateman for Halloween. Patrick Bateman as Halloween. Mostly women dressing up as Patrick <laughs> Bateman for Halloween. So it's a very interesting like trend I'm seeing. And I've been very outspoken about it. I was like, what's going on with American Psycho? Like, I want to know. Uh, and it makes me want to rewatch it now. But like, yeah, it's like now at 2.1 million, million uh, views on uh, Letterboxd which is pretty big, honestly, for, mm-hmm. I mean, it's so surprising. Um, it's probably, let's see, where is it in Christian Bale territory? Yeah, that's weird. It's Christian Bale's second most watched film on Letterboxd right now. Mm-hmm. The only one being that's beating it is The Dark, Dark Knight. Knight. So what, so it, it's, it's a thing. It's a thing. Like it's, it's more than a, it's over double Thor and Love and uh, Thor 11 Thunder. <laughs> Which is somewhat surprising mm-hmm. uh, with Letterbox crowd. So some, so what's going? I feel like, um, oh gosh, what's my man's name over at ESPN? It's like what's going on with the Utah Jazz right now? That's <laughs> what I'm thinking about with American Psycho. What's going? You know, what Brian Winhurst? What's going on with American Psycho right now? It gives now? me, it gives me hope doing? for, it gives me hope for media literacy because there are some concerns with like, yes, younger yes. generations not having as much media literacy and this idea that like, oh, that movie's about like an alpha male who like yeah. kills women. I'm not watching it. And it's like, okay, we'll just watch it and form your own opinions. And you might learn that it is has a very similar viewpoint that, that you had when you said you weren't going to watch it. Exactly. exactly. Just because it is a dude in the lead role, it's like people forget that it is directed by a woman. And there is a very interesting, uh, and, and also written by two women, even though it's based on a book by a man, written by two women. So like, it's very much like a female's look at toxic masculinity is the thing. Um, so it's worth watching. I was going to say video drone was my other one to check out. Um, David Cronenberg is the thing. We talked about that a mm-hmm. few, few years back on body horror, uh, really just wild movies. So both checking out, both were checking out. I think both are streaming American psychos on Peacock video. Drum, I believe is on criterion right now for their techno thriller mm-hmm. month. It's also on Peacock. So if you have Peacock, Peacock has a good, good, yeah, Peacock's a had a good, good, a good lineup this year. Yeah. Yeah. 
And then finally, what did you learn this month, Thomas, about the social horror and like horror in general, I guess you could say? Yeah, I mean, I think it's always interesting, you know, like we've talked about in the past with kind of the way that that the the culture of the time kind of rubs off on these movies. It, it's, yeah. it's also interesting to look at these that were made much more deliberately and identify what, what was going on at the time and be, and kind of place them exactly where. Because, you know, if, if you had, you know, before this month, if you'd been like, yeah, Invasion of the Body Snatchers is like a, a, a social film, I'd be like, yeah, absolutely. It's like, you know, it's it's got that kind of paranoia. It's, it's, it's the 70s, all that stuff in the 70s that you're talking the jfk assassination like bay of pigs cia all that kind of stuff is rubbing off on it but but it you know it wasn't until we sat down to talk about it and i'm like oh yeah it's also like seeing like reaganism right like reaganomics yeah, yeah. On, on the rise it's it's predicting patrick bateman um yeah so so yeah it, it, it it's all about context and that's what I, I i love taking the opportunity to really look into the the social context of all of these and and be able to place them very firmly in a time because I, I think they all are covering like very universal themes mm-hmm. and, and, and issues, but you, you definitely gain like with 2000 maniacs being like, this was the first movie to call people out on this behavior is like, yeah. Oh wow. That, that, that really places it in a, in a really interesting context for me. Yeah. And like we're talking about get out, it's like, uh, like, and we mentioned like Stafford wives and Rosemary's babies, Rosemary's baby and how Peel was saying how like, you have the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement kind of parallel with one another, but you have movies about the women's rights movement in some way and about gender roles. Like I think it's fascinating with Stafford wives and Rosemary's baby kind of coming at a time when divorce is on the rise. You're seeing more independence within like the women movement, like female, like, like kind of women's rights and stuff in the seventies, uh, Roe versus Roe v. Wade. All these things are kind of coming up in the seventies and you're seeing movies kind of, kind of commenting on that at a certain point basically mm-hmm. um and then there there are just like i said kind of time capsules while they can make a statement for the present they're very much in the moment making a statement about in, being in the moment if it's obama administration and the trump administration get out as we said earlier in the episode or it's like I said 2000 maniacs all these things night of the living dead like they're all kind of making even bones and tales from the hood too. We talked mm-hmm. about our Patreon stuff uh, of how they're representing a time and place uh, issue that could still be going on, but that's kind of why it's there's like, it's almost effective is because it is in some cases, sadly evergreen is the thing is they're always an issue to be, to discuss about race, about class, about, about gender, about sexuality, about all these different things. Um, so yeah, it's it's kind of I, I was I was just somewhat surprised by that that I wasn't expecting of how tied to the time these movies can be. Mm-hmm. Is the thing. All right, Thomas. Well, I think that's it on social horror. All right. And October is coming to a close. I got to squeeze last... in as, as many last movies on this list. I want to beat my my number from last year. So I got I got oh, some I, movies I, to watch. I'm not doing that because I had COVID last year in this time. Mm. So I just like was watching three or four a day when yeah. I was sick. Mike, Mike uh, Flanagan's making it tough for me to do that. But yeah. Um. Thanks Mike. <laughs> Thanks Mike. Um, yeah, but next month it's going to be a whole other month theme month and that's November. And we're going to be talking about private investigator movies. So we're still working out some of the details, but next week you're a little bit older. 
We'll see how y'all y'all take it, but it's one of my favorite movies, and that's The Thin Man with William Powell and Myrna Loy mm-hmm. from the 19, 1934. Uh, currently not streaming anywhere, sadly. <laughs> Great. Um, but, but you can probably rent it uh, on yeah Apple TV, Prime, uh, Google, YouTube. Uh, it's worth checking out. It's really a, a, a fantastic film. Not tip my hand too, too soon here. Uh, but Thin Man is next week. Talking about kind of private investigators, private detectives. It's going to be fun. That's Thin Man. Then the week after, Thomas will be talking about Vertigo from Alfred Hitchcock. And then You guys may have heard of it. You might have heard of it. And at some point this month, we'll be talking about Chinatown as well. So stay tuned for that. It's going to be a fun month. Uh, also, I I mentioned I didn't say it again at the beginning of the, the episode. I might have to record this. But Children of Men, Thomas. We're doing a ch- screening of Children of Men yeah. on the 10th at the New Art Theater. Gear tickets now available on New Art New Art's website, Landmark Theater's website. Uh, hope to have a good crowd see a masterpiece in the big screen uh, I hope hope for a fun night it's going to be great and then our Patreon subscribe to our Patreon if you can get more exclusive content Thomas I talked about Bones and Tales from the Hood and then after this episode I believe Tom, uh, Dave and I are doing the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers kind of compare and contrast the two the two movies so stay tuned for all that uh, thank you for if you've supported us so far with the Patreon with the screenings uh, we appreciate it so much. We love kind of hearing what you all have to say and that you, what movies you like that we cover, all that stuff. Um, but yeah, that's what happened in this episode. If you have any questions for us, feel free to kind of send us podcast at gmail.com. Send us your questions, comments. We want to hear from you. Also, if you're a listener to the show or a fan of the show, and for some reason you haven't subscribed to us, be sure to do so to stay up to date on all of our new episodes. You can subscribe to our show on our podcast, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever your podcasts. And if you haven't already, be sure to write us review your preferred podcast platform join us become one of the the millions who have reviewed us and given us five stars it'll be so much easier all you have to do is post take away your fear take away your anxiety Mm -hmm. just listen to our voices talking about movies it'll be a better place for you and finally don't forget to like and follow us on facebook instagram twitter x letterbox and tiktok thomas as always thank you for joining me thank you for having me and thank you all for listening we hope to listen more episodes soon bye